0: Then, we started a new series last week, working through the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Advent is a season of preparation, uh, preparing for the coming of the King. And so in that vein, I wanted to remind you, our our practice has been the past few years, to provide you with an Advent devotional guide. We started handing these out last week. Uh, If your family did not grab a copy of these, there should be some left on the resource table uh, even if you're a visitor with us this morning, we'd love for you to take one of these home. This is our, our gift to you. Uh, if, if reading, uh, spending daily time or even every other day time in the Word and prayer is a challenge for you, I know it is for a lot of people, you'd love to ask, Where in the world do I get started? Uh, this is a great way to get started. Uh, The devotionals are short to begin with a a passage of scripture and then some thoughts on those that can lead you into prayer. So if that's a a discipline that you would like to uh, reinvigorate or begin in your life, grab one of these uh, on your way out today and hopefully uh, it prepares you. The Lord uses it to prepare you for Christmas. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Hopefully there's one in uh, the rack in front of you. Page 807 is where you will find today's passage. Last week, uh, we began by looking at Jesus' family tree. And we saw how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That word means anointed one. The Greek word is Christ, and so that's why Jesus is called the Christ. He is the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. And what we're going to do this week is we're going to see how, uh, we're going to talk about what Christ has come to do. He is the Christ, but what exactly is it that the Christ has come to do? So we're going to talk about that today. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Let's give our attention to God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Like him, it's holy. It's infallible, without error. It's true. It's good. And he gives it to us for our benefit. So let's pray and ask for his help in applying it to our lives. Father, this is a a familiar passage maybe to some of us, I pray that our familiarity with it wouldn't blind us to the truth that's here. Lord, would you help us to pay close attention to what it is that you're saying, and I pray that your word would come with power to our hearts, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Who can tell me where that line comes from? Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet. We have a free book for you out in the gathering area, Advent devotional. Yeah, that's right. That's what what Juliet says to Romeo. Why does she say that to Romeo? Because Romeo's last name is Montague, and her last name is Capulet. And the Montagues and the Capulets are at war with each other. But Romeo and Juliet are in love. And so Juliet says, oh, it doesn't matter what your name is. Your name is not important to me. Names don't matter. The sad irony, of course, of Romeo and Juliet is that names matter a whole, whole lot. Spoiler alert, both Romeo and Juliet end up dead by the end of the play precisely because of their names. So names do matter. And that's what Matthew is telling us in this passage. There's a lot about Jesus' name here. It seems to be a particular point of emphasis. In fact, Matthew gives us two names for Jesus. And so we're going to look at both of those today, what those names are and what they mean. And the first name, we're going to see that Jesus comes to save us. That's what the name Jesus means. Then also, we're going to see that Jesus comes to be with us. And that's the name Emmanuel. And so let's break each one of those down. Jesus comes to save us. First, we need to talk about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Something a little bit different is going on here. We learn from Matthew that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Uh, in Jewish, century, uh, Jewish culture of the first century, a betrothal is like our engagement but much stronger. Uh, To be betrothed to someone is basically to already be married. You're just not living in the same home. And so uh, the only way to break a betrothal is to issue uh, a certificate of divorce. So it's much stronger than an engagement or what we know to be engagement. Um, And it's during this period of betrothal that Mary is found to be pregnant. We're not told how, uh, but somehow Joseph comes to find this out. And so, since they are not yet fully married, and the child is not his, then that makes Mary an adulterer under Jewish law. And by the custom of Joseph's day, she is no longer eligible to be married. And so... Joseph's options are few. Uh, His wife-to-be is an adulterer, uh, and he has to figure out what exactly it is he needs to do. And so Matthew tells us, in verse 19, that Joseph is a just man, and that he is unwilling to put Mary to shame. You see, according to Jewish law, if Mary uh, was in a consenting, adulterous relationship then both her and her lover would be stoned to death. Now, if the circumstances were different, uh, then the punishment would be different. But yet, um, either, either way, Mary is under significant pressure here, and so is Joseph. And what we see is that Joseph is a just man. He is a righteous man. He loves God's law. He loves God. And so, what that means is he's not quick to anger. He doesn't move to rash action. He has no desire for public scandal. He doesn't feel the need to vindicate himself or prove himself by shaming Mary. And so, he decides that he's going to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to put her to open shame. Oh, that we had more men that were righteous like Joseph. Men who love God and love God's word, who want to do justice, but also who love mercy and want to walk humbly with their God. That's what Micah 6a does. He has told you, a man, what is good. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that's what we see Joseph doing here. He does not want to put Mary to shame, and so he aims to divorce her quietly, and that is when he has a dream. Matthew says, behold, that's kind of a way of saying, look here, surprise, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is no ordinary child. He does not come about by the ordinary means. He has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's deep mystery here. Uh, Matthew does not explain. The Bible never goes out of its way to explain how this works or what exactly happens. It's one of those deep mysteries, whereas one of my professors would say, you just kind of come to the edge of the cliff and there's a guardrail right there and all you can do is peer over. But there are some things that God has not explained to us. But we, he has told us this, that Jesus was supernaturally born. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That the same Holy Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep and brought creation out of nothing brings life into Mary's virgin womb. We do not know how, but we know that he does this. God is up to something. And then the angel tells Joseph what the child's name is to be. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus was a pretty common name, actually, in Joseph's day. It was a common name for Hebrew men. It's the Hebrew name Joshua. And the angel says that the reason he will be called Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. And that's what the name Joshua, or coming over from the Greek Jesus, means. It means the Lord saves. And so his name means the Lord saves. His salvation is in his name. What does that matter? What does his name tell us? Well, one, it tells us that we need saving. We don't just need some help. We don't just need a hand up to get back on our feet. We need to be rescued. His name also tells us what we need to be saved from. You see, in the first century, in Palestine, where Joseph lives, you would expect the angel, to say he will save his people from their enemies. He will save his people from Rome. But that's not what he says. He says, name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Not their bad circumstances, not a godless culture, not a world in shambles from their Sins. To put it another way, he comes to save us from ourselves, from our own stubborn, constant rebellion against God. A rebellion that leads me to death if someone does not intervene. That's what Jesus has come to save me from. And then finally, his name also tells us who does the saving, the Lord saves the very Lord that we've sinned against the one you've ignored the one you've run from the one you've spited and cursed the one you've shaken your fist to the one we've treated with ingratitude and apathy that Lord he comes to save his people from their sins I wonder if someone treated you that way, how would you respond to them? What would be your treatment of them? What would your treatment of them be like? Here we see that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He will save His people. Not He might save His people, not He may save His people. He will save His people from their sins. That's what Jesus' name means. The Lord saves. And how does he accomplish that salvation? Well, that's in the next name. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew likes to say this. If you were to continue on through Matthew's gospel, he says it repeatedly because he wants to show that everything that God is doing in the person of Jesus is what he promised to do long, long before. That this is not a new thing that God is doing, it is the fulfillment of a very old thing. Jesus' life and ministry are a fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. What it is Matthew is saying is, these things are happening just because God said they would. And then he quotes from Isaiah 7. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. If you you were to go back to Isaiah 7 and to see the context in which uh, this promise is given, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, they are uh, under threat from Assyria, uh, from the, the big bad boy on the block at the time, and wicked king Ahaz is afraid. But rather than trust God to rescue him and his country, he makes an alliance with another enemy, another nation. But all the same, God gives him a sign through Isaiah anyway. And in this sign, in this promise of a, a virgin who will give birth to a son, God shows that he's more committed to his people than they are themselves. That's the promise of Emmanuel. And what does his name mean? God with us. And if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible and were to start reading through, now if you do that, be prepared, there's some some tough sledding. It's not not a, a feat for the faint of heart. But if you are able to go back to the beginning of the Bible and start reading all the way through, then this promise shouldn't surprise you in the least bit because you see this theme over and over and over again. In the garden, God with His people. What does He promise to Abraham? I will be with you. To Jacob, I will be with you. To Moses, I will be with you. With you. To Joshua, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah 43:2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And if you look all the way to the very end of the Bible, to the happy ending, what is it that John sees in Revelation 21? And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God with us. That has been God's mission from the very beginning. To be with his people. It's where he was at the beginning in the garden. It's where he will be at the very end of it all. And it's how Jesus saves. What does Jesus tell his first disciples after his death and resurrection before he ascends to heaven when he commissions them when he sends them out on mission what does he tell them what promise does he give them I will be with you always to the end of the age. God with us. Friend We do not have a God who stays at a distance. We do not have a God who is afraid of our sin. We do not have a God who leaves us to our own destruction. No, we have a God who becomes like us. He takes on our flesh, our limitations, our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus comes to be with us so that he can save us. That is the offer of the gospel. That's the promise of Christmas. Do you have a God like that? Is that the Savior whom you trust? A God who loves you so much that he would draw close to you and save you from your son, even in your rebellion. I invite you to trust in the Lord Jesus this morning. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we would not have dreamed up this salvation plan. We we would not have imagined this rescue plan on our own. That you are a God who comes to be with us. You are a God who takes on our very flesh. And you do it so that you can save us. Even as Fred reminded us from your word er earlier, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, we praise you for your great salvation. And for those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray that they would see their need of you, their need to be rescued, and that we would see the sweetness of the rescue, that you have come to us to bring us home. Lord, we pray uh, our theme for this week, for ourselves and for our families from Romans 8.13 That you would help us to, by the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body so that we may live. Lord, I pray these things would be on our minds and our hearts as we move towards Christmas. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.